Matt. Dave, congratulations. We're recording this on Emmy nomination Tuesday. Thank you so much. Beloved treasured national holiday that is Emmy Nom Tuesday. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're basically an Emmy nominee. No, I don't know what this basically is. I am fully an Emmy nominee. Um, I made an appearance on episode three of this season of Reno 911 nominated for best short form comedy series. That is fully a nomination. That is a nomination. Um, I will tell you, it happened so early. I wasn't expecting it. I got a call yeah. from my agent. <laughs> I was just so, I was so excited. And I just really want to thank everyone who was involved with the show. Um, you, uh, Tom Lennon, Ben Garant, Carrie Kenny Silver, all of yeah. them. Carrie Kenny, by the way, nominated, nominated uh, for Best Actress in a Short Film Comedy Series. So that's awesome. Mm. Um, this is, this, this really, it could complete my, um, my EGOT, which is I, um, I'm briefly in this season of Reno 911, which is nominated. I know the guy who played the, the guy that, um, Emma Stone is auditioning for toward the end of La La Land. That almost won best. It did briefly win best picture. And then that was taken away. So, so that I'm missing, I'm missing that. O of that. O, but I was close. I was very close to that. O. um, Mm -hmm. I um, was the criminologist in the Rocky Horror Show with Sebastian Bach. Again, none of us nominated, but it did happen. On Basically Broadway, so a that, Tony. That, there's my Tony. There's my Tony. Got, so yep. I'm really just missing the Grammy at this stage. But thank, oh, which, anyway, just thank uh, you for bringing Your it. connection to the Grammys is it's like pick a lane. It's like yeah. a, it's the three yeah. degrees of Dave Holmes there. you know. I do have a, uh, a platinum record for uh, Smash Mouth's Astro Lounge that was uh, issued to me for reasons I don't understand. So I do have that. So basically, yeah, I do have an EGOT. That's it's it's been an exciting morning. God, I will say it has changed you. I detect yeah. a bit of an edge that wasn't there yeah. before. But, uh, you know, you've earned it. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you so much. How are you? Well, great. I, I mean, just I, because I don't want to lose touch with my roots. How are you? Thank you so much uh, for giving me a moment and um, you, for congratulating me, as I'm sure you were about to do, for mm-hmm. my nomination, which is that Jen was nominated for Best Lead Actress in a Drama, oh, her first Emmy yes. nomination in the drama category, not her first I Emmy mean, nom or win in general, obviously. As she's historically been in the comedy category. So I've just, it's been a flood of texts and tweets, two or three tweets, uh, I think two different texts, just uh, outpouring of affection from people about this. How do you feel? Every time there's a new, um, 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 what is the word I'm looking for? The opposite of chink in your armor. A new feather in the cap. Feather in the uh, Sure. That is um, that is sort of the Gen Geist. It just feels so gratifying. If, you know, I, I, I would it, imagine that it would, yeah. It's all worthwhile. We've been through a yeah. lot, as, as everybody knows. Um, you know what? 2020 has been a good year for her. Yeah. And, and it is, I do feel bad that she was nominated in that category. Reese Witherspoon was not. Carrie Washington nominated for uh, Little Fires Everywhere in the miniseries category. Reese not. Tough for Reese. A tough morning for Reese, but you know what? Her 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 and Ryan Phillippe's child has a has a song out now. 
Oh, I didn't. Oh, you know, he's a recording right. artist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Ryan, Ryan Philippe put a black and white picture of himself uh, sitting, lounging on a couch in Burbank, clutching a bottle of Whispering Angel Rosé. I think that's good living. Um, I continue to root for, for Ryan Philippe, however you say his name. Um, just a great day all around. Yeah. Um, what are you uh, what are you watching, listening to, enjoying? You know, it's the uh, same thing here. It's uh, it's I May Destroy You. Uh, okay. Every Fabulous. week, appointment viewing it is mm-hmm. just staggering. Yeah, but that's about it. What are you watching? I I need to tell you about my favorite show on television right now. Which is? Um, it's on Instagram. Uh, it's called What I Order by Joe. Um, oh. You will recall from from years past my affection for grocery store Joe from The Bachelorette. He um, comes from food. He's like, you know, grocery store family, obviously. Yeah. So he's something of a, of a, of a, a foodie, we can say. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has started a show on his, which really just grew out of his Instagram feed where he would eat food and just say, and just be like, oh, that was good. And, and that's what he does extremely well. I have determined that my full sexual orientation is watching this man eat things and then just say vague things about what he's eating. So he's now got a show Mm -hmm. called what I order where he goes to a restaurant and it's like, here's four things. And then he eats those four things and he's like, Oh, this is good. And then he eats another thing. He's like, Oh, this is good. And then at the end he tells you what of those four things he would order. Now there's a process of elimination. There is a build. There's an arc. Um, where he like one by one eliminates them. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to get the, you know, I would get the banana bread or whatever Mm -hmm. because it's good. Literally has no insight about anything that's happening around him. It's just him being handsome and eating things that look delicious. And it's what I need in this tense Mm -hmm. moment. We lost Um, Anthony Bourdain, but we got But we gained Joe, Joe, whatever his last name is. Um, He recently went to my hometown of St. Louis to settle the, the... age-old dispute about St. Louis pizza, which is whether it counts as pizza. Um, and his take on it is, eh, it's good. And sorry. sorry, what would it count as if it were not pizza? It's it, People just are hot under the collar. If, if St. Louis pizza is the first pizza you've ever had, you love it, and it's the standard by which all others are judged. If you have had any other style of pizza anywhere in the world, and you have St. Louis pizza, you're furious at it, and you hate it, and you, you want to oh, cast it into hell. I because see. It's, like, it's like, it's, a, it's on a very thin crust. It's on like a crust that is essentially a premium saltine cracker. Um, okay. The cheese that is used instead of mozzarella is called Provel, which is essentially... Like American cheese and Velveeta came together. Um, it's very gooey. Uh, it's it is objectively disgusting, but it is my favorite kind of pizza because it's the first kind I ever had. Oh, I didn't know that. It does. It's. Yeah. I, I'm intrigued. Uh, well, I wouldn't mind get trying some St. Louis. Louis pizza. You know, uh, every now I'll and then, the, the the main pizzeria in St. Louis does freeze and and send the individual ingredients, and I have been meaning to have a St. Louis pizza night so that I can infuriate all of my friends. So you guys are invited. We'll be there when it happens. But in the meantime, at what I order by Joe, I think on Instagram is uh, is a can't miss proposition. Well, speaking of can't miss, uh, yes. the other thing, of course, that we have watched and loved and been talking about is the documentary Disclosure on Netflix. That is true. And uh, and the show In My Skin, 
that is now on Hulu. Fabulous. It's also been on, uh, I think, believe BBC Three in the UK. And uh-huh. uh, we have the uh, creative forces, uh, two of the creative forces behind both of those shows here today. That's uh, right. It's a double feature. Full double feature. First up, we've got Sam Fader, who is the writer and director of Disclosure, this uh, mm-hmm. documentary on Netflix that you heard us raving and raving about. And um, fantastic. And we have the same. We have the same favorite moment from Disclosure, and that makes me so happy. You'll yep, hear about and, it. Yep. Uh, we uh, Sam and I also share a barber. Shout out to Eli at Blind Barber in Highland Park. Excellent. I need to get there. Uh, and then Kaylee Llewellyn, Welsh, brilliant. Uh, she's been a friend of, uh, of mine for a long time. She did, uh, my other podcast, International Waters back in the day. I took to her immediately. She did, uh, Homophilia Live at the London Podcast Festival last year. Um, is just an absolute brilliant, uh, uh joy of a human being who is writing on, uh, Killing Eve for next season, which is pretty cool. Yes. And, and she created uh, In My Skin, which is fabulous. Yeah, she created In My Skin and, uh, it is, it is a must watch and, uh, just flipping through this week's New York Magazine, and there it was uh, in their re- recommended list of stuff to do this week. So well done, Kaylee Llewellyn. However, before we get there, we got flesh hunger. Matt, we got to oh. dive right in. We had a uh, we've had we've been deluged with text, with audio, with all of it. Um, Renee has uh, has pulled some audio from a uh, recent emailer to at. Ho- to homophiliapod at gmail.com. We're going to hear this story. We, we're going in blind on this one. Now. Yeah. Great. So are you ready? I'm ready. Let's hear it. Okay. So my first time after years of very intense flesh hunger, uh, I was also a very good Catholic boy, um, came into my own very late in life, and all through my teenage years into early adulthood, I had pretty much the same fantasy uh, that uh, that fueled my days and nights. And it was some variation of being alone in a locker room spa type place and an older man also being there and we get to it. So that was always the fantasy. Hold on, hold on. I I think this guy just dreamed Equinox into existence. Anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah. So I was 24. Uh, I was living in Chicago. I was working for an ad agency and a major uh, air freshener client um, unwisely sent me by myself to a small island off the coast of Florida for five days um, to photograph and film the island scents. Well, while I was there, uh, because I finished all the work that I needed to do the first day and then just spent the rest of it as a little vacation for myself, I went to the hotel spa because, of course, the client had a ridiculous budget that let me stay at a ridiculous hotel with a wonderful spa. I'm there by myself, in the spa, no one around. And it's a men's-only section of the spa, and there's like a hot tub, there's a steam room, and... I'm there by myself, and then this older guy comes in. My fantasy is coming true. It's pretty incredible. My heart is racing. I have no idea what to do. We're making small talk. He's clearly dropping hints that I am woefully ignorant of uh, until finally he just 
comes and sits right next to me and says, hey, would you like to go jerk off together uh, in that private area over there? I was shaking and I said, but I have a girlfriend, which I did not. Uh, and he told me, well, I'm married. <laughs> so uh, hopefully we were both lying to each other. So anyways, we go into this other room where I'm just shaking with anticipation that my wildest fantasy that I have had for years and years is finally coming true. And he then proceeds to give me the roughest hand job in the history of time, uh, as if his hand is made of sandpaper and my dick is uh, an unfinished piece of wood. <laughs> it is awful. It's awful. And I don't know enough to tell him, please stop doing it that way. So anyways, he comes. Um, I don't. Um, but I, I'm like, okay, that's enough. And uh, he's like, oh, did you come? And I said, yes, yes, absolutely. And I got out of there as fast as possible. And um, anyways, never looked back since. All right. Love you guys. Bye. Oh, wow. And we love you. We absolutely do. I mean, do you have credibility issues? Yes. You know, I mean, yeah, you're lying twice to uh, to an older man, but that's okay. Sometimes a little white lie gets you out of trouble. It's it was so riveting. Uh, I I was just on the edge of my seat for this entire tale. So well told. I was on the edge of my seat, and the the shaking is such a recurring theme in all these flesh hunger stories. There's so much. Yes. Shaking. Yeah, there is because there's so much built up tension, so much built up need that you have not addressed physically or emotionally or mentally. And then it, God, when there's, when it feels like there's going to be an outlet fully, the, the entire body starts to shake like your dog on July 4th. It's and crazy. I, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, I'm sure that after this experience, this guy went back to Chicago or I don't know where he's living now and went to gyms and spas and realized, Oh, this experience is available to me every day. Literally at all times. At all. Um, well, sir, we we salute you. We do. and and your your ability somehow to photograph sense. I'm going to need to know more about that. Yeah, would love to see so the final call, product of your work. Call back in. Um, I also want to point out that it, even though I uh, have lived in LA for 20 years and. Uh, was a member of the notorious 24-hour fitness on Santa Monica Boulevard of the heart sure. of WeHo when that was sure. basically a bathhouse. And then I'm, I'm going to Crunch and Equinox and all other places. I was never propositioned in the and I, I and I like a steam room at the end of a workout. That was part of the appeal for me. But yeah, for for you know uh, legitimate reasons, not that having a you know, a yank is not a legitimate reason, but you know what I'm saying. It's a perfectly point legitimate is, reason. But yeah, I, people I are less willing to make themselves. Yeah, people won't make themselves vulnerable like that in Los Angeles. Get yourself to an island off of Florida, all bets are off. You've had you've had a pina colada by noon. You're in a different That's world. Right. That's right. Um, um, we also have a uh, another new review from Magical Smurf. 
who gave us, gave us five stars. Thank you so much. You just round off my week all the time. Best duo out there. Can't wait to see you both live one day. Oh, it will happen. Oh, Thank you will. so much, Magical Smurf. We can't Say wait hello to see to you. Say Smurfette for us. Uh, we cannot wait to see you. It will happen. Have no fear. Um, let's get no into this fear. episode. Yes, without further ado, Sam Fader. Enjoy Sam Fader, followed by Kaylee Llewellyn. And we are back with Kaylee Llewellyn. Kaylee! Hi, how are you guys? Oh, I mean, I've never been better. How about you? Never? Never in my life. <laughs> never, ever. Um, what are we in now, week eight? Something, Something like, like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. And it has just been announced that uh, LA County is in for 12 more weeks. Really? Whew. Whew. Yeah. Oh, oh that's... Yeah, because yeah, we were creeping up on the end of our shelter at home orders, which felt mm-hmm. insane. But mm-hmm. now we're gonna keep on keeping on. It's kind of keep on keeping on. We're in the opposite place here. You guys might have heard that um, our government just sort of really haphazardly on Sunday night was suddenly like, actually, you can, you can go back to work tomorrow. Um, just d- don't use public transport. But um, yeah, if you can work, then you should work at like 7 p.m. on Sunday night, and everyone was like, well, my kids can't go back to school. I don't have a car, and you're telling me I can't use public transport. So it, it, like, it was, it's all gone a bit crazy. So we're kind of feeling furious that our lockdown has been lifted before it's safe. God. Oh, God. And how, how locked down are you? Are you, are you uh, staying in around the clock? Yeah, pretty much. It's, it's kind of being a writer is a luxury because that's kind of my life anyway. Um, so it's not come as too much of a shock, but I've been doing, I'm writing on the new series of Killing Eve at the moment. And, uh, yeah, we've been doing a virtual writer's room basically for the, the entirety of lockdown. So it's, it's given my days like structure. We all sort of log on to zoom every day and work. So it's meant that it's not felt too weird. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, doing that as well at the moment. And it has been really nice to obviously not leave the house, drive anywhere. Feels as you're saying, feels nice to have some structure in the day. It's it's sometimes hard, especially in comedy, a zoom pause can really just kill the moment like nothing else. Yeah. You don't have quite the same like ability to have a tete-a-tete as you do. in Um, But we're all, these are hardships that we all have to endure, right? Yeah. This is very relatable. Um, yeah, I mean, it's you know, the, it, an extension of the lockdown is terrible news that I was happy to hear. You know, like uh-huh. it's it's awful, but I think it will allow us to emerge more confidently in yes. twelve weeks. Yes, and not be going back more sensible like. than any other approach. Yeah. Feels Kaylee, what is what is the rest of uh, outside of the writers' room? What are the rest of your lockdown days like? Can you kind of paint a average day for us? Yeah, we have this. Um, we live in Hoxton, which is quite I don't know if you know it. Sort of fairly central London. It's very like built up 
um, and we've got this little strip of patio on our flat that previously was just like cement blocks and then loads of rubbish that gets thrown out of the windows from the flats above us. And we just sort of like, don't look out there. It's the place of the place of bad things. But during lockdown, we've been like, no, we're going to reclaim the gross patio. And so basically every minute we have, me and my girlfriend are out there like building our own planters. We bought some timber and we, and we got like a hammer and some nails and we made planter boxes and put plants in. We've painted the shed. We're painting everything that stands still. We've, we've made it like this lovely little haven. And that is literally all I've done is either work or garden. That's fantastic. That's what you need. Yeah. It's very relaxing. And obviously a lot of TV as well. Watch a lot of okay. TV. Yeah. So let's get into it. What are you watching? Watching, we just started watching, I don't know if you have this over there. It's called Race Across the World. No. Have you heard of it? I don't think we do. So people no. pair up and you get dropped in a country. And on this series, they've been dropped in Mexico, these different couples. And you get given the cost of what a flight would have been from Mexico to the other side of South America. So you get like 1,000 pounds. And you have to cross South America, but you're not allowed to get on a plane. And all you've got is that money and you don't have a phone on you. So you get given some hard cash and a map and you have to cross South America by, by land. And they're, sort of, and they're racing each other to see who can do it the fastest. And it's absolutely addictive. Ooh. How this long does ring, ring on? Yeah. How, how long has that show been going on? Is that new? This is the second series. So I guess, okay. but we only just found it. And obviously, Tiger King. Sure. Okay. But you've got to. You've yeah. got to. Normal people. Just to stay culturally literate, you have to. You have to. You have to, yeah. Um, have, have you guys done Normal People? I'm reading it. Okay. And I want to finish reading it before I start watching it. What do you think? I love it. Yeah. I absolutely love it. It's so beautifully written. Um, but yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't seen the show yet. It's stunning. It's like yeah. fantastic. But I just saw this Instagram video today from um, Paul Mezkel, the guy who plays Connell in the TV show, yeah. who is phenomenally talented. He's such an incredible actor. And then today he's just casually uploaded this video of him playing piano and singing Chandelier by Sia. Okay. And I saw that. His voice is also stunning and he can play an instrument. And now it's just like, actually, you're getting on my nerves now. This is one too many skills. Yeah, he yeah. must be stopped. Yeah, this is enough. Yeah, he is, uh, they're both uh, absolutely beautiful, which is nice. Good for them. I'm happy yeah. for them. Yeah. They're pretty much what I was picturing for Connell and Marianne in my head. So there's, yeah. not, there's not a huge disconnect there. Daisy Edgar Wright, who plays Marianne, weirdly looks like she could be the sister of Sally Rooney. They're so kind of really similar. Mm. Mm-hmm. I have not watched it yet because I'm a little scared to dive in. My friend who was giving me the hard sell on it said, uh, it's great. It will make you feel old and like all of your best days are behind you. And I'm like, that's not something I, wa- I can experience right now. That is true. That is definitely oh, true. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Okay. There's also an element where you go, 
I might not feel those highs again, but I, I, I maybe won't feel those lows either. You know, they're like, they're, they're just crippled with sadness all of the time. And I feel like I've moved into a place of contentment. Yeah. That I'm glad to be in. Yeah. There are moments in the book that, that are an absolute punch in the gut. And yeah. I'm, uh, I'm very much looking forward to seeing them acted out. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Who is your favorite of, uh, of Joe Exotic's husbands? The, the toothless one. Sure. Okay. okay. Strong choice. Did you know, have you seen it to, uh, pictures of him with teeth now? No. What does he look like? He looks great. Uh, I'll, I'll, you guys continue. I'll try to find a photo for you just so you can um, get a glimpse on I kept watching his like uh, talking head interviews and obviously he was shirtless the whole time. But I think you uh-huh. think you, you're not a bad looking guy. If you had some teeth and, and a top, a shirt, you, mm-hmm. you'd be all right. I wonder if, if shirts, if his body just rejects shirts. It's he might just be one of those people where it just, it won't stay on. That must be it. That's a generous way. Can you see this? It. Yeah. What? It looks okay. He, he looks, looks okay. Better. He's got teeth. He's got teeth. Oh. We can agree on that. He's got teeth. Do they make money out of doing that show? Do they get paid? I don't know, but I would imagine that every single one of them has, has had their story optioned. Because they're, yeah. it's a full Tiger King industrial yeah. complex now. Like everybody's going to have their own show. So it's, it's they probably multiverse. did not. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I'm sure they've all cashed in in some way or another. Saf, um, the guy Saf, who was misgendered for the entire series by Netflix. I'm guessing he's been yeah. some kind of show. He deserves to. He absolutely deserves to. He's given a, a hand for the cause. Literally. Literally. Uh, what, did you, what did you grow up watching? What was your like obsession in your youth? Um, I was really obsessed with anything that like had the slightest sniff of lesbian in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what yeah, is that? Um, we had a show called Sugar Rush that was on in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was set in Brighton, which is, I don't know if you guys have been there, but it's kind of like uh-huh. on the seaside where all the gays go. Um, and it was this young girl that was in love with her best friend. And the best friend was straight, so they never had any lesbian action, but she wanted the lesbian action. So I was really into that. And then I, I used to like illegally download some shows from America. So I would watch My So-Called Life and oh. Six Feet Under was the other one. They were my two favorites. Oh, yeah. I mean, masterpieces both. Not a ton of lesbian content in those that I'm remembering. Or is there? No. My so-called life had the gay best friend. Of course. Ricky, yes. Ricky. And then I think in Six Feet Under, the character, the sister Claire, had like a, a brief flirt with being lesbian. And then she returned to being straight. But I lived in hope that lesbianism would come back. It never did, but I stayed faithful. Right. That sounds like Claire. Yes, classic, yeah. Claire, yeah. So let's talk about In My Skin, which uh, we were talking about before we started recording and is is so, so great. And I, I genuinely feel honored that I got to, you know, watch it because I know other people over here don't have access to it just yet. Um, how did it come to be? 
Um, so it's an autobiographical show. So it's kind of my teenage experiences growing up in, in Wales with a, a mum who has bipolar disorder type one um, and was sort of frequently sectioned for, for really long spells of time. And it just so happened that the mental hospital was on the same road as my high school. So wow. that was where she was. And I was deathly afraid that my friends would find out, one, that my mum was ill, but two, that, that that's where she was. It, that was the kind of place that kids would go on the weekend and get drunk and, you know, kind of throw stones at the window. And, and my mum was in there. Um, and I was so worried if they found out that they would just ostracize me or cut me out or worse, make fun of my mum, which is just, you know, isn't that the most awful thing when you're a kid? So I just used to tell lies all the time. And I kind of <laughs> feigned to be this really normal kid with this run-of-the-mill family when I was at school. Um, and obviously, as time went on, my, my house of cards slowly began to cave. And so, yeah, a, a couple of years ago, I just thought, I'd, I'd been kind of, you know, I've been writing for a few years and you pitch shows and they, they get to the final line and they never quite happen. And I just got to the point where I was like, why don't I just tell my story? Why don't I just tell that and see if that resonates with people? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's my first, I've written on other people's shows, but this is my first series, um, you know, of my own. So it's been really incredible. Congratulations. It is beautiful. Yes. And it is, it is very Welsh, but it translates. I'm so pleased because, <laughs> yeah, it is very Welsh. But you guys can put subtitles on, right? Don't need them. We can, but I don't need them. Good. Don't need them. That's good to uh, hear. And I'm sorry I'm forgetting her name, but the girl who plays the, uh, the lead, the young, the young you, is mm -hmm. so incredible. And I'm just curious what it was like for finding her and watching someone sort of watching this reenactment of your own life play out before your eyes? Well, we luckily the casting director on the show, um, amazing woman called Rachel Sheridan. She also happens to be one of my best friends. So we, we made the show on an absolute shoestring, but she went above and beyond to find the cast that we have because it's, it's one of those shows you're casting all, all the characters are 16 and we just knew everything hung on making sure we found fantastic performers. So Rachel was like touring around Wales, going to high schools and youth clubs and just meeting hundreds and hundreds of kids who, who've never even acted before. And then the day G Gabrielle Creevy, who plays Bethan, um, yes. the, the day Rachel first auditioned Gabby, she texted me and said, I found her. And then she sent me a picture and I was like, nah, that's not her. She's too pretty. I was gross at school. I didn't look like that. And I didn't see it. And then Gabby came for a recall and I was in the room and uh, the moment she walked in, I was like, oh my God, that's her. She was just magic. And she, she was still at drama school at the time. Um, you know, she's young, but she's such a talent. And in the UK, the pilot aired before we got picked up for a full series. So just on the pilot alone, she's already won a BAFTA for Best Actress. Wow. It's just amazing for such a young performer. Um, it's, it's, there, there are scenes with her and Joe Hartley, who plays um, my mum. We made a decision early on that Joe wouldn't meet my mum or even see a photograph of her because I just wanted her to be able to create a character in her own right and not, not feel beholden to do 
an impression. So we made that choice. So she's, she'd never met my mum. And there'd be times where, you know, we were on set and they would film a scene together and I would have goosebumps because it was like my mum was in the room. It's bizarre how close it would be. And, and a lot of my friends as well actually say they're watching Gabby. They see me. They see my expressions and my the way I gesture and things like that. It's, it's a really odd thing, but honestly, it, it, I feel so lucky. It's been really magical. I'm so, and I'm just so proud of it. As you should what, be. What was school life like for you, you know, it, 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 as far as coming out? Were there, were there queer people? Yes. Now, in hindsight, there are a, there's a weirdly high amount of gay people from my school. But at the time, none of us were out. We just sort of all right. kind of banded together. It's like, we're straight, but we like drama and we like hanging out with each other. Um, but I mean, you'll see as the show goes on, there's a lot of bullying for being called a fat dyke, basically every other sentence and, and things like that. But I actually love school because I think if you're from a home life like mine, going there and, and being able to relax and have fun and just be with my friends and not have to be kind of responsible and caring for someone, it was just I, kind of fun. So I really like going there despite the fact that I was called a dyke out constantly and I yeah I had a couple of friends who were my best friends at school and we all sort of really really were convinced we're straight and now we all live in London together and we're still best friends and we're all raging homosexuals I love it talk (laughs) us through the click who who are these who are these people Uh, one of them is a guy called Matthew Barry who actually lives in LA now he's just moved to LA he's writing on Sabrina Um, he's a writer too and then my other friend Ben, who we we all call Shirley, after Shirley Bassey, because he has the most incredible singing voice and he can do the most flawless impressions of Shirley Bassey, Judy Garland, Liza Minnelli. Um, and then there's, there's, like, there's a guy called Adam Vaughan who performs in West End shows here. Um, there's another lady who is a TV producer who's a lesbian. We've just all moved here en masse. That's beautiful. Wow. Beautiful thing. That's yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Did you were you able to date at all in high school? I got my first girlfriend when I was we, we do A levels here. So we stay in high school till 18. Mm-hmm. Is that the same as you guys? Yeah. So yeah. kind of like in my final, final year when I was um like six months before we left, I met this girl who was the year below me called Lucy was her name. And we were doing a production of Sweet Charity, the musical, which is kind of like running joke that every year I would audition for the musical and every year I would be cast as stage manager. (laughs) (laughs) They did not want me on stage. So I was was in my fantastic role of stage manager again. And um, I remember walking into the room where everybody was kind of warming up and she was in the chorus. And it was like angels singing from heaven and this beam of light shining down on her head. And I was like, who is that? And in hindsight, she's kind of like, she's an amazing woman, but like kind of a plain looking, sweet Welsh woman. But at the time I thought that is, that's like Catherine Zeta-Jones. That, that's a movie star I'm looking at. And I, I kind of, in this moment of being bold, which is quite rare for me, I walked up to her and gave her my home phone number. And Ooh. I was like, we should chat. So it's a smooth move. But she had a boyfriend at the time who she'd been going out with for like three years. So we just became really good friends. 
got really intense. Eventually she left her boyfriend for me. And, and that, that was my first girlfriend. And we, we wound up going out for like three years. We moved to London together and oh, we wow. broke up. And, and now she is back with the boyfriend. She's back with Alex. What? And they're married and they have children. Okay. And, and are, you, are you on friendly terms? Well, in theory, yes. Although she lives in Wales now and I, I have never seen her. I haven't seen her in like eight years or something. Um, But I'm incredibly fond of her. I would love to, if I saw her, I would be thrilled to see her. But yeah, we're not hanging out. I guess her husband would have good reason to not want her to hang out with me. Yeah, he's like, fool me once. Yeah, yeah, I'm no fool. (laughs) What was the coming out process like with your family? It was... It didn't really happen, to be honest, because I was, for anyone who watches in my skin, the, the depiction of my dad in that is very close to what he was like. I, uh, I hated him and, and he was a massive homophobe. Uh, so I was never going to tell him, not that I was afraid of what he would say, uh, but rather I thought you don't deserve to know things about me. I'm just not going to tell you. Um, so I didn't. And then with my mum, there was this one occasion that um, they just thought Lucy was like my really good friend who came over all the time. And me and Lucy were in my bedroom one evening, just watching TV. And I had this little like gross old sofa in my bedroom. And so we were like lying down and I was kind of spooning Lucy from behind. And then my mum just kind of like burst in and she came and said, oh, your dad's watching something on the TV. I, I want to watch EastEnders. Can I watch it with you? It's like UK soap show and me and Lucy were on the sofa and I thought you know when you like calculate really quickly in your head I was like I'm not going to jump up because that makes me look guilty so I'm just going to lie still and I sort of saw my mum almost like freeze mid-sentence and look at us and her brain also going I'm not going to react so she was like can can I watch EastEnders I was like yep so my mum kind of sat on my bed and watched the show for half an hour, and I just stayed frozen with my arms around the seat, oh, like, my God. just almost like paralyzed, like sweating and locked in position. And then apparently, the next day, my mum said to my sister, oh, "Oh, is Kaylee a lesbian?" And Becky said, "Yeah." But and my little sister's also a lesbian, so they got two two of us. And so that was it. She just she just sort of knew, and I never had to come out. Did you? Is it just you and your sister? We have two older brothers as well. And did you beat her to the punch in, in coming yeah. out? She beat she beat me, which is infuriating. The younger which, one did it first. Oh wow. Yeah. Well, good for her. <laughs> How's she doing these days? Still a lesbian. Oh um, right. great. Good. She's, still big into that she, she's good she lives in Wales still she works in an old people's home like a, a residential home so she's kind of on the front line with corona at the moment but she really enjoys it oh wow well not the corona not the corona no no right thank you for clarifying I was wondering <laughs> if, if she enjoyed that it would be strange um I'm just curious going back to your mom um it, it, how she has responded to the show and just what conversations you had with her to sort of prepare her for what was happening. Well, it was the bizarrest thing because 
My mum, at the point when I, I started writing the show in early 2018, just the, the pilot episode at the time, and at that point, my mum hadn't been sectioned in a mental facility for 11 years. She was still very much ill, heavily medicated. She, she's so medicated she can't work um, and things like that. So, you know, there's there's no, like, bed of roses here. But she hadn't been sectioned. And so with that kind of level of distance from it, it's, it's why I kind of thought maybe now I can write about this. There's been enough time. So I didn't tell her initially because I thought, there's no way this show's going to get made. They never do. I'll just write the script and whatever. We'll see. And then, of course, that's the one that I get the call to say this, this is going to be filmed. Um, and five days after I got that phone call from the BBC, my mum got sectioned again. She had a nervous breakdown um, and was taken into a mental hospital here. And it was the, the most severe episode she's ever had. She wound up being sectioned six times in the space of a year. Oh, and just really bizarrely, because where we're shooting in Wales, where I'm from, the mental hospital that she was in is the only hospital in Cardiff where you could also film TV shows because they had an empty ward around the back. So we had no choice. We had to film there. And, and we were filming in a wing of the hospital as my mum was sectioned there. Oh, my God. Um, which is just crazy. And, and I, uh, I could never have foresaw that happening, foreseen that happening. So um, all that said, she was too sick at the time. What I would have loved to have done is kind of got her to read the script and check that she was okay with it, but she was too ill. So instead I got my sister to read it and said, you know, if there's anything in, in this that you remember differently or, or you just think is too personal, you don't want it out there, tell me and I'll take it out. So Becky read the script and then um, she kind of just texted me and said, I love it. Keep it all. Mm -hmm. So, so I did. And then um, finally, my mum was out of hospital and she was well enough. It was about a month after the show had aired here. So I'd kind of, it had gone down really well, but I couldn't fully relax and enjoy it until I knew what she thought. And so it had been about a month and eventually she was well enough. And I, I was in London waiting on tenterhooks as I knew she was in Wales watching. And then she eventually just called me and said, I love it. I'm so proud of you. And it was the most incredible feeling I, I hung up the phone and started crying of course oh God, that's beautiful yeah and that's so wild were there days when you were shooting in that hospital where you are traveling from one wing to to work and then the other wing to visit your mom yeah totally but it was really important that um i mean everyone in the crew knew that she was there and i mean it, it would have been unlikely for us to see her because you know, she could go out for a walk, but it's in an enclosed area. Mm. Um, but just everybody knew to make sure they sort of kept their distance because a big part of bipolar or any mental health is kind of paranoia um, and feeling like you're being watched or you're on the news or someone's coming for you. And I thought the idea of my mum randomly seeing me with a camera and 50 strong film crew that would just be awful so yeah we really had to work hard to keep that separate but yeah I was sort of wrapping for the day and, and popping in it's just crazy uh, I couldn't so surreal it. but then when we filmed the series she was out of hospital and she was well she came to set one day which was really brilliant because she's never seen me at work before but I think it was a bizarre experience for the crew and the cast because they kind of been we've been shooting for a month 
you know, sort of every element of my life and therefore her life. And then this woman kind of walks on set and, you know, like they feel like they know her, but they don't actually know her. It was almost like Madonna had walked on set. <laughs> um, it, was, it was a weird experience, but she, she really enjoyed it. What is that like on set when moments from your life are being acted out? What's going through your mind? Actually, by the time we got to shooting the series, I'd rewritten, the, I'd redrafted so many times and I'd had time to like cry at home as I was writing it and be emotional and then redraft it and redraft it and redraft it. And, you know, to a point you become desensitized and then we'd had the read through of all the scripts and actually, so, and, and also I sit in on all the auditions. So I've seen the same dialogue read over and over until I'm bored of my own words. So when we were on set, there was quite a few occasions where all the crew would be crying and some of the actors would be emotional and I would be like, oh, I feel fine. I'm, I'm actually cool. I'm, I'm dry eyed. There's one scene in particular, which is the, the final scene of the whole series, the end of episode five, when I, I broke down during that and our, our DOP was crying. The extras were crying. It was... I don't, I don't know how to describe it. It was so emotional and um, moving and cathartic. And it, but I also just thought, I'm so lucky to be doing this. This is like a rare kind of therapy that I'm getting mm. to do here. Did you have to do a regular kind of therapy while doing this to sort yeah. of maintain I, your own sanity? I wasn't doing therapy during the show, but I'd done a lot before, which is probably how I was felt, you know, in a stable enough place to write about it. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen the end yet, obviously, but is it is it meant to be closed ended, or could there be a season two? Um, it's open for series two. Great. Yeah. So, Kaylee, you mentioned a girlfriend. Uh huh. To tell us everything. How long has this been going on? I want. Were How you long has together this been going on? When we were all at the London podcast podcast yeah. festival. She was there. She was in the audience. Well, great. Okay. Yeah, her name's Emily. We, uh, she's a, a journalist and a, a documentary maker. And we were set up on a blind date by our friends in September 2016. Oh, nice. What, what, what did you what, do? Where'd you go? It was a really weird experience, actually. It's one of those things, you know, as gay people, that I, I wanted to be offended by this where I, I have this, so tenuous how we met, I have this friend, Sarah, who knows a woman called Cam. I don't really know Cam, but Sarah knows Cam. And one day they were hanging out and Cam was like, how's Kaylee doing? Still single? And Sarah was like, yeah. Cam said, I think I know a lesbian, actually. My boyfriend <laughs> grew up next door to a lesbian in Newcastle. Shall I see if that lesbian is single? And Sarah was like, Yeah. So she did. And then me and Emily both get sent a picture of each other being like, what do you think of that? And so I said, you know, pretty. So, so they decided we would all go on this group date. So the, the, the idea was that it was for me and Emily to meet, but that all of our friends would come so that it wouldn't be too awkward. And you want to meet and be like, no, I don't like her. And how dare you think that the two only lesbians, you know, will like one another. But the truth is, I basically found another there instantly, and we're still together. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. You're quarantining that, together, obviously. Yes, we've been living together for about a, a year and a half now, I would say. 
Okay. How, how's the quarantine, how is it affecting your relationship? We're quite lucky because Emily has an auntie who lives in Ireland, but who has an apartment in London that's empty. So every day Emily cycles to this empty apartment and works there. So we still have our days separate. And then, you know, we can reconvene in the evening. But um, it means that we are not driving each other too crazy yet. Like we've had our moments of, of sort of going, I need a break from your face for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the whole, yeah, I think that's a really lucky position to be in. We've kind of been able to have our space. Is uh, marriage on the table or is it too soon for that discussion? I don't know if I care about marriage. Do you know, I'm kind of like, yeah. I've always thought if I meet someone who, who it means a lot to them, I'm so neutral about it that I would gladly go, yeah, let's get married. Um, but I wouldn't push for it. And I think Emily kind of feels the same way. Mm. So my idea of, of a, com- a bigger commitment is buying a house together. That's on the cards. We want to do that. Great time to do it. Yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> Perfect. That old market's going to drop a little bit. So yeah, it, it might be a good time. Although not the time yeah. that you want to be viewing properties, really. Right. No, of course not. Yeah. What about children? Um, I, we, we just had this chat recently, actually. I, Emily's not so bothered about kids. I really, really want kids. Um, and they don't need to be my own. I really feel like I want to give, and maybe from, from the childhood that I've had, I want to pay it forward and give some kids a nice life. I want to adopt some kids and make their life good. Cause I feel like I kind of had, I had a difficult time growing up, but now I'm in a really lucky position and I'm doing the job that I love and I'm really happy and things have worked out. Okay. And I want to, I, yeah, I want to pay it forward. So yeah, it's, we'll, it's one of, it's, we'll, we'll see, you know, we, it certainly won't be at least for another five or six years, I would say, but it's one of those big discussions, isn't it? She's not that bothered. I really am. We'll have to see how that shakes down. And does not that bothered mean just not that interested? She's open to it. She's not dying to do it. Um, I, uh, I think she sort of flip flops a little bit and it's been through periods right. of, thinking, Oh, I do. And right now she's at a point where she's kind of going, the world's in an awful state who wants to have kids, right? Like, is it the, is yeah. it a sensible thing to do to have kids right now? Um, so, ah, we'll, we'll keep talking. I'm, yeah, I'm curious because I'm the Emily in my relationship and uh, I gotta say doing sort of zoom dates with friends who have small children right now, it, for those of us who are flip floppers is very scary because mm-hmm. it's a tough, tough time for them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I really feel for my friends who are trapped at home having to suddenly be teachers and you never get a break. But on the plus side, or the flip side, is this going to happen again? We've never had a lockdown in our lives before. So maybe you'll you'll get to skirt it. You'll not have to live the lockdown with a kid. I hope so. Will will you do it, though, do you think, as a flip-flopper? Do you think you will permanently flip or permanently flop? I, I, I could see it happening. I could see myself caving. I'll put it that way. Yeah. So that probably, maybe that bodes well for you and Emily. She'll cave too. 
I just keep wearing it down. Um, what are you most looking forward to doing when this is all over? I am dying to be near the sea. I I dream about it every night. I, I, I dream about smelling it. I dream about hearing it. I dream about feeling cold water on my skin. It's truly all I can think about. That and I'm really dying to do an improv gig. I do a lot of improv and, and not being able to perform is the other thing that I've really, really missed. What do you think is the future of live performance in that way? Because I'm, I'm the same. I'm dying for it, but I have absolutely no idea when I'm going to get to do it again. Yeah, it's a really frightening time. And like, I don't know how many of the businesses and establishments that I usually perform at will still be there at the end of this because they, they're taking a beating. And I, it's going to be at least another four or five months, I think, before... They can think about opening those tiny little sweat-filled hot box rooms. It just is not safe. Right. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's a frightening time. I guess there's an option where they kind of like halve the amount of seats in a room so that people can socially distance, but then how do you make enough money to survive? Right. What's the plan then- there? Have they said anything about when you'll get to perform again? There is none. There's no plan. Nobody knows. I had tickets to see Alanis Morissette next month and it's just postponed indefinitely. Mm-hmm. It's been the biggest blow so far in the past. Are you getting into doing any like Zoom comedy shows? Have you done any of those yet? I've not done one of those yet. That that worries me. Yeah. I have attended uh, one and it was you know, it left something to be desired, I guess. And this was sort of a character stand-up-y thing. Improv, I, 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 I guess, is happening over Zoom, but I have I've not experienced it. Yeah. yeah, I've been asked to do a couple of Zoom improv shows and I've said no so far. Maybe I'll get desperate and I'll change my mind. But the thing that I love about improv is being on stage with a group of people and stepping into the unknown together. If I'm just sat in my lounge alone, I don't think I'll get that kick. Yeah. Yeah, just be thinking. Yeah, it's just run-of-the-mill talking, isn't it, then? Yeah, yeah, it's just a clever conversation. Yeah. Um, Which I would still be happy to see. Absolutely. (laughs) So don't let us know if you're doing it. Um, The Eurovision final would have been this Saturday. How are you going to be celebrating it? Oh, my God. I hadn't realized it would have been so soon. Um, Yeah. Are they doing anything to make up for it? Is there going to be any kind of... I think they're just airing... I think they're just playing all the videos of them. Um, and maybe Graham Norton will pop up here and there. But there's no, there's no proper thing. I don't think they're, they're choosing a winner or anything. How sad. Last year we went to this great party where we all got given a country and you had to dress as the flag of the country, bring a dish a national dish of that country and a national alcoholic drink of that country. It's quite a lot of labor to be honest. Um, a lot of work, but the party but Eurovision doesn't come easy. Don't come easy. And it was okay. such a fun night. I'm sad that that's not happening again. What are you going to do? Uh, what, did, what did you have to bring? Who were you? I was Macedonia. Um, oh God. High degree of difficulty. Yeah. I, I brought some kind of weird ass liqueur that was disgusting. Um, and what was the food? I think I made um, m- Mahamara. 
Is that a, a mo- that is. Mo- it's like a dip that they have there. And it was tasty. Mm. It was pretty good. Okay. Right. Yeah. Fair. So I, um, you know, when, when it was announced that it had been canceled and that, you know, everything was locked down a couple months ago, I was like, okay, great. There's, I, I know one other person, one other American who is as obsessed as I am, and that's Amber Ruffin, who lives in New York. So we were like, why don't we do, like, we'll both live stream from somewhere, we'll play all the videos, um, you know, people can pop in, other, other you know, comedy adjacent people who like Eurovision can pop up and, you know, Michelle Collins can give her 12 points to Iceland or whatever. And we're like, yeah, 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 let's do that. Let's do that. And then we did nothing about it. And now it's Saturday. So I have no idea if we're going to do anything at all. I think just like put the music on and get drunk and, and dance. That's, that's, that's enough. That's the spirit of it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Iceland's uh, entry this year is top notch. This would have been their year. Just going to go ahead and say really? next year's final would have been in, in Reykjavik if uh, if the world hadn't uh, come apart at the seams. It's such a shame that they can't like film these people singing privately and just show the videos because you don't yeah. need and you don't need an audience. I know an audience is nice, but it's not essential. Yeah, we can all still. I mean, the big the big goofy stagings of every show. I mean, like that's, you know, that's fun. Yeah. I, you know, I, I like the spectacle of it. That's, that is one thing that I think benefits from being way the fuck over the top mm-hmm. is Eurovision. But, you know, we could have dialed it back. I don't know. I mean, listen, if you want to get something going, it is Saturday. We have a couple of days. Yeah, we've got what, 72 hours or something. It's not undoable. 72 hours. Yeah. Yeah. We're crafty young people. We're we're we're, yeah, exactly. we're burnished in the, in the world of improv. Get yeah, the shit done. All right, great. Well, that's that's done. a yes. So everybody, Eurovision is back on. It's happening Saturday. Uh, it's hosted by Dave and Kaylee. Perfect. <laughs> Kaylee's triumphant improv return is a very I'll special bring, occasion. I'll bring my Mahamara. Uh, sit tight for your Zoom invite. <laughs> So Kaylee, for, thank you. Oh yes, thank you. And I, and for for people who are not lucky enough to get a secret uh, link, are there plans to release the show in the U.S. or is there a way for people to see it here? Yeah, it's coming out on Hulu on June fourth. Oh, nice! Terrific. Congratulations! That's perfect. Fantastic. Yeah, so you get That's to great. see it soon. Five episodes. Love it's it. so, so great. I'm excited for people to see it. I can't wait to see the rest of it. And um, can't wait to see you in person again one of these days. Thank it you. will happen. I was supposed to be in LA in July, which is obviously not happening now, but soon yeah. I hope. We hope, yeah, we hope. it'll happen. Yeah. Until then, Kaylee, you get our 12 points. Ah, thank you. Um, Britain never gets 12 points, so that means a lot. Never. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you've, you've earned it this year. Uh, Kaylee, thank you so much and stay Bye. safe. Thank Take you, Kaylee. Bye. We are back with Sam Fader. Sam. Hi. Thank you for joining us. 
Pleasure to be here. With a fresh cut. Fresh cut. <laughs> Thanks to Eli. Yeah. You're all yeah. lined yeah. up. Eli at Blind Barber in Highland Park, our mutual friend. First person to tell me I had to see this documentary. And uh, I'm so glad I listened. And, yes, um, indeed. Disclosure is a must watch. If you haven't yet, stop. Just hit pause now. Go yeah. and watch it. But you have. Everyone I know has seen it. It is, it is so great and so thought-provoking and so uh, emotional. It's, yeah. really, it's really beautiful. So thank you. So before we dive into the documentary, how is, your, how is life in quarantine for you? What is your day-to-day life like these days? What's going on? You know, it's definitely been a, a, a dual consciousness these past couple of months because we've been so focused on getting the film ready to get it out. Um, and so that's been a huge distraction, you know, and then when I'm not distracted by that, it's just that loud siren of, Oh my God, what's happening in the world. And, uh, it's been really hard. Um, the uprising was very inspiring and exciting. Um, and I feel like, you know, disclosure, the, the themes and the conversations in disclosure really connect to the, the moment of uprising. So I'm really grateful that we could be part of that conversation. Um, COVID pandemic is terrifying. And I, I just this weekend, I started just trying to imagine if this never ends, how will, like, like I need to stop being on pause in a lot of ways and just, you know, figure out what does this mean to live in pods and not go to blind barber and yeah, yeah. What, just kind of kind of figure out what this next life looks like without thinking this is ever going to end. Cause I'm, I'm not sure it's going to end. Yeah. Not looking great. No. So, so what does that look like then for you? What have you? Do you have any answers? I'm, I'm just looking for ideas. To be totally honest, I need to get those uh, blue blocker glasses for the computer. Sure. <laughs> the eye fatigue from screens. So that's that's one. I think I need right. to adapt to screens. Um, and the re- you know I've I don't know. I really don't know. That it just I re- this was the first weekend I've taken off since probably late February. So I took a hike in the park and you know, a lot of people were not wearing masks. And mm-hmm. so how do you adjust to protecting? I don't know. I, I, it's, I'm, I don't know. Do you have any ideas? Uh, look, I've been watching the good wife uh, from <laughs> the beginning. I don't know. I mean, that my go-to is just, is just watching uh, gross amounts of TV. What are you watching? What's on your watch list? Disclosure. Well, of course. All the time. Without saying. What is on my watch list? Um, Well, I just finished. What did I just finish? Oh, I'm in the middle of I Will Destroy You. Oh, incredible. Thoughts? So, you know, at first I didn't, at first I was like, you know, I don't want to watch something about rape. That's just, you know, um, I'm not the audience for that. And I, I need to escape. Um, but I'm so in love with her as an actor, as a performer. I love chewing gum. And so I just wanted to give it a try. And I just got so caught up and enthralled. And her approach to talking about sexual assault, I think, I've never seen it done this way before. Yeah. 
And I do find that after a few, without giving away too many things, you know, without giving away spoilers, there is some catharsis and there is an empowerment. You know, there's that, that, that shift, which I think is a great model for, for folks who've experienced assault. So I think it's great. And I love what she says about um, working with distributors and figuring out the best partnership for her. I wish those, were, I wish those conversations were more transparent all the time. Yeah. yeah. What does she say? I, I, I kind of I saw some of that interview, but for those who haven't, um, you know, uh, you know, on the side note, I'm we are distributing with Netflix, and it's been a great experience, and it's an incredible platform. And I came in in a different situation um, than she approached. Than she was working with them, but my understanding is she wanted to maintain some of her rights, uh, and uh, there was no room for that. It sounds like she did not get that in making chewing gum and that she set out to um, really sort of course correct with this. And, and she got it with HBO. She got like all the, all the partners she wanted and got to make the show she wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, yeah. The, the part that I read indicated that she went point by point uh, through the deals with all of the various people who gave her offers and basically said, like, explain this to me. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about, which forced them to really like explain what these deals are, which in many cases they weren't able to do because they were not fair deals, which is a really good thing to remember. Like you can, you can make them do that. It was such a good thing to remember because I also, Coming from an indie doc world, I never really expected to have opportunities that are coming my way right now. And there's this sort of, you know, you don't want to reveal that you don't, what you don't know often, right. you know, you feel like, oh, they won't take you seriously if you say you don't know. And then that was just such a great reminder that it's okay. And it's actually really, you know, that sort of vulnerability is incredibly empowering. And, right. and I've been doing that more now since reading that. In, in one of her interviews of just being like, yeah, explain this to me. I don't understand. And it's, yeah. and people are actually really excited to share knowledge. Sure. And so it's, I, I love those conversations when they're held publicly. Um, Cause it really, it changes people's approach. And I just, I applaud Michaela so much. It's, it's interesting what you're saying about, you know, the uprising, cause it, it does feel like disclosure is really like in conversation with what's happening. And, the fact that um, that thirteenth Ava DuVernay's documentary and Disclosure are both things that are just sort of required viewing right now, um, that both of them are a just excellent films, but also um, it's it's funny that they both sort of start with a D.W. Griffiths film in terms of like the history in. The thir- in 13th, it's um, Birth of a Nation, but in Disclosure, we're seeing clips of, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of it. Judith of a Nation. Yes. So can you describe what we're, what we're seeing in those, those clips that you highlight in the documentary? Yeah. And first, just a comment, when you were talking about 13th and Disclosure, the first thing I thought about is they're both telling American history, right, in, in a very direct way, um, which a history that's often told as a, a side note, right? You know, and it, they're just such testaments to you just slightly move the lens, you slightly center another person's experience, and you're looking at American history in a such different way. Um, 
And it's not, you know, this is not just a trans history. Disclosure is not just a trans history. It's a history of America, right? It's how Americans have had this experience with film and TV. So, um, so we have both Judith of Thulia and, and Birth of a Nation in the beginning of the film. And it's because in 1913, this film came out called Judith of Thulia, made by D.W. Griffith. And we were telling a story of how in that film there's it's that film is credited with inventing the cinematic cut in order to propel the narrative and in the scene where you see the first cut you're also seeing um, a trans body because this this character is quoted is credited as a eunuch in the film credits right so it's this cut body um, you know a, a body that transgresses gender expectations and when I learned this history through Susan Stryker who tells it in the film I was just so blown away by not only how she was centering transness in history, but also how from the beginning of storytelling, this was a site, you know, these trans bodies were a site of fascination. And it was D.W. Griffith doing that, right? And it's, I, I was less, I was less enamored with the, the technology because someone else, someone would have invented the cut, but I was just blown away by the, the power that D.W. had and how he knew how to use, you know, such bigotry you know, to tell stories and to gain an audience. And, you know, as we're talking about Judith of Bethulia, we have to address who DW is, and therefore we have to address uh, Birth of a Nation, and we have to address the racism. And, and the fact, I love when Yancey Ford talks about how, you know, if he had been in film school and they taught Birth of a Nation and they didn't talk about the racism, that would have been it for him for film. He would have never wanted to pursue film in a career. And it's, I mean, to this day, people are teaching Birth of a Nation without talking about the fact that it, you know, propelled the rise of the, the resurgence of the KKK. And, and so the grounding disclosure, grounding this history in how race and gender have both been um, sites of fascination and intertwined topics in this, the history of celluloid, it was very important that that be grounded at the beginning of the film. So uh, the documentary is executive produced by Laverne Cox, of course, and she is uh, heavily featured. And um, I just love to hear you talk about meeting her and how that connection kind of helped bring the film into existence. So as soon as I started talking about making this film, everyone was like, oh, Laverne would want to be involved. Laverne should be in this. She's a perfect fit. And I, you know, I was like, yeah, of course, but that's never going to happen. Like she's, you know, she's not going to be interested in making this film with me. And then over the, over the first couple of years, I was, you know, definitely started to think more and more. I would love to interview her. And we had some friends in common. So I was taking it slow and figuring it out. Um, and then I was invited to do research, to present my research at Outfest. They did the trans summit every year and they invited me to present my research in the summer of 2017. And I got up there and gave my lecture and showed some clips. And at one point I look up to look at my producer and sitting in front of my producer is this beautiful woman with big reflective sunglasses on. Amazing. <laughs> and she's trying to hide, but of course, you know, I probably just mentioned her two seconds ago in my lecture and there she was, and she was incredibly engaged nodding along with things I was saying, which in and of itself, I was just thrilled. And then, uh, Afterwards, she approached me and, and my producer and said, uh, you know, I've always wanted to make a film like this. How can I help? And mm -hmm. I had, uh, you know, four-hour meeting a couple days later at the Soho House, which was <laughs> an experience in itself. I'd never been there before. Um, 
And it was lovely. And we just connect on so many levels. And, you know, it was in that meeting that she first told me that story that is in Disclosure about her relationship to the film Yentl. And it just, it was so crystallized in that moment what trans spectatorship is all about, right? And how unique of a lens it is. Um, and, and how important it was that only trans people be interviewed for this story and that we had to prioritize hiring trans people behind the camera as well. Um, because it's such a unique experience to look for yourself where there is nothing, you know? Um, so Laverne came on and she, you know, she's a historian in her own right. She has a, an incredible memory. Like that woman does not forget anything. Uh, and she's brilliant. Um, and she's been, she's so kind that like she has done She's just so really, really one of the most kind people I've ever worked with, ever met. She's done so much spiritual work and she's so self-aware. Um, I, I really couldn't have imagined a better partnership. And she was involved with a, a lot of the research and a lot of the preparation and a lot of the editing and has been, you know, everywhere with promotion. Um, she's really proud of the film. It's her baby. Um, I, and I, I certainly could not have made it without her. As for yourself, you, you mentioned the, the, the experience of looking to see yourself reflected in popular culture. Did you, were there ever were there glimmers of that in your in your youth? Did you ever identify with a character? Uh, you know, I find when I look back with that question that most of the experiences I had that now I can understand to be trans and try to think about how it relates to my identity. They, all they actually did was make me disidentify it. Right? I was like, oh, I certainly don't want to be that, right? right. So, you know, I'm, I grew up in the 80s and going home, you know, watching talk shows, like, oof, definitely did not want to be that. Sure. Um, but certainly was curious and, ha- and felt so much pain for so, so like, how often uh, trans folks were just the butt of a joke and the violence that would ensue on the shows and just the, the freak show aspect of it. Um, or, you know, then seeing when I was 15, seeing, um, just making sure the phone is still recording, seeing, uh, the crying game and just being so caught up in the secret and the promotion around it and wanting to know what the secret was and then finding it out and, and, you know, being with the audience of the ooh factor. Right. And then what does that do to everybody? What did that do to everyone's brain at the time to know that, when you're about to have sex with somebody and you're gazing down this beautiful woman in this beautiful setting and the beautiful music, and then you get to her penis, then you go vomit, right? What is that? What did that say to every single person that saw that? Not just trans people, right? So that was, I was 15. Um, and then boys don't cry came out. And again, I was like, Whoa, that's what a future of like, of whatever these feelings I'm having and the way I want to move through the world if that's what it's going to look like, you know, that I'm going to end up raped and murdered, it's clearly not the path I want to go down. So those three examples really just further made me think like transness was not an option. It certainly was not what I wanted or how I identified. And I really didn't understand my relationship to transness until I met trans people in real life. Right. Um, so we have Laverne Cox. Uh, you mentioned Susan Stryker. It, it is such an incredible, um, cast that we see on screen can you just talk about uh, how you chose everybody that we see in the film and um and off screen you touched on it a little bit but and off screen and off uh, that everyone who worked uh, you're selecting your crew and 
right. that process. Well, so as I was saying, we prioritized hiring trans crew. And I spent months, you know, going through networks and trying to find people and interviewing people. And when we couldn't hire a trans person for a key role on set, we mentored a trans person. And that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of with this project. And not only did that have an immediate domino effect where one of the mentees, one of the mentors, sorry, she was so moved by this experience that she went back to her union, which is IATSE, the largest tech union in the world and instituted the first trans sensitivity training. So already from the beginning of production, we were seeing a domino effect. Um, and our, so many of our fellows have gone on to, to have jobs. And um, there's just no small thing for any trans person. Um, so really the, the production model is really super important. And we prioritize, we, no, we only interviewed trans people in front of the camera. And everyone we interviewed uh, worked on one side of the camera or the other. Um, and the, way we it was excruciating to figure out who to interview right the there needs to be a five-part series to include everyone who has had a voice in this story um the the way we narrowed it down was really about scheduling like so many people that aren't there were not available like two directors two trans directors silas howard and sydney freeland they were always on set you know they're in high demand um you know a lot of actors were also shooting so a lot of it was scheduling a lot of it was budgeting um, but we, you know, as I did the research and Laverne and I were kind of figuring out the story and as we talked to more and more people, we just figured out the touchstones and the issues that were really important to address and who would best address those issues. So it was a very organic process, um, once we got going. But like I said, there are so many people that we weren't able to include and I really hope I can in the future. The ones that you do are brilliant. There is a moment with Jen Richards where she talks about uh, a conversation that she has with a, with a father of a, a trans child during, I, I believe it was the filming of I Am Kate, um, that allowed her to d- dream bigger dreams for herself, which I related to so strongly. Uh, my, my partner and I watched it together. We were both full basket cases at the end of it. It is... I think every queer person can can see themselves in that moment. It's not only every queer person, I think every person. I mean, we yeah. all need to be seen. We all need to be reflected. We all need to be mirrored. And I think, you know, there is that that story is such a testament to how it's so much more powerful to be specific in our storytelling, right? The more specific we are, the more universal it becomes. It's something Zachary Drucker talks about a lot. And you know, I think often we try to be universal by appeasing, you know, the mass and thinking we need to water things down. And it's, it's the opposite. Um, the more like the, Jen's very specific, very personal story, that is what more than anyone, more than anything, that's what people reflect on. And the message of that story is simple. You just need to be seen, right? But it's the, the way in which she came to that conclusion, you know, is, is so specific. And it's so moving and you see it happening in real time on screen. It was the first time I'd heard her tell that story. Um, and she and I have been friends for a long time and have had, I mean, she did like seven hours of interviews for this project. Um, so we knew a lot of what we were going to talk about, but this one happened in real time. And I really, I, for a while I thought it was going to be the end of the film. Um, but ultimately this film is not simply about seeing yourself. It's about, you know, the nuance and the complexity and the paradox of seeing oneself. So we had to end it a little more complicated. But 
yeah, it's a powerful moment and Jen is brilliant. And it is, it, 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 when eventually they give an Oscar for best coffee cup punctuation of a story, I think, she, I think she's got that one locked up. Yeah, you know, I really do. Had, I added that in after Sundance. I was doing some, really? some edits after, after we premiered at Sundance and getting ready for, to get it to Netflix. And I think originally when Stacy, our editor, you know, she and I were talking about that. We we're like, well, we don't really do that with other people. It seems a little strange, but I always felt I needed more space after that moment. Like we really, the audience needs to take a deep breath. And when I watched it again after Sundance, I was like, oh, the coffee cup is beautiful. Like yeah. it is, then we're with her even more. We're taking that sip with her. Yeah. And yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, and complicated is really the word I, to, to, you know, that, that applies to so many of the examples that you cover in the film where it is, it's so many of these, um, characters and the way that they are depicted are groundbreaking on one hand, but, um, sometimes cringe inducing, you know, um, as we look back on it. And I was specifically interested in how you were going to cover Transparent because I was such a fan of the show and was so uh, so emotionally invested in it when it came out. And then real life events have sort of colored the way that I look back on it now. And um, I was just curious how you how you thought about Transparent when it was coming out um, and how you decided to address it in the film. You know, it was really important for everyone on our, on our edit, editing team, you know, Laverne and Amy, my producer and, and, and myself and, and crafting this film and Stacy, that we not demonize anybody, right? But that we hold everyone accountable. And so figuring out how to tell full stories um, we were committed to throughout. So anything we critiqued, we made sure to, off, you know, bring in and find and, and make a lot of space for the positive as well. With Transparent, it was, it was tricky um, because like you, I think many people were sort of left with this very singular feeling. Um, and did some people feel like they saw it coming? You know, did some people feel like, yeah, that's kind of the risk you're taking. Right. And right. Um, it, you know, and, you know, for years, many, many, it, it also just so relates to non-trans people being awarded, you know, literally getting awards and accolades and work for telling trans stories, right? So there, those conversations are really part and parcel. So it, I, it was super important to centralize Trace's experience, um, mostly because the mainstream media didn't, didn't listen to her, right? Didn't believe her. And that is part of our history, right? That's part of what Disclosure, the film is all about, is that saying we're deceptive, that we're liars, that we aren't who we say we are, you can't be trusted. And that was, you know, replicated in the way the media responded to Trace. Ugh, it makes me emotional just to think about it. It's really mm -hmm. gross. So I had to center that. There was no, there was, and, and, I, and I also wanted to be really sensitive to tell, retelling that in terms of Trace's experience of watching the film. I mean, she was so sick of talking about it at the time by then. Uh, she didn't want that to be the only thing people knew of her. Um, but I couldn't leave Transparent out. 
uh, not only because of the tambor situation, but because it was an important part of our history in terms of the strides we're making in trans storytelling, in terms of hiring trans people. So I don't know if I'm answering your question directly, but that's sort of the process of, I couldn't leave it out. I knew it had to be in, even though I had very complicated feelings around it, and this was the solution. And is there, uh, if you look at this, you know, landscape that you present in the documentary, is there an example that, in terms of representation, that you, that gives you hope, you know, that we're sort of heading in the right direction? And there are a lot of examples of how it was done badly, um, but is there one that you can, you can point to at, that should sort of set the tone moving forward? Hmm. You know, I see that mostly in indie work, quite honestly. I haven't really seen it in Hollywood yet. Um, I'm sure there's something I'm not thinking of, but I, I haven't really seen it yet. I mean, um, you know, the centering of Black trans women in pose is wonderful. Um, also, I'm, I'm a critic, right? So it's really hard for me to ever say anything. I'm really, I'm going to find a problem in most things. Um, but I, you know, when you started asking that question, the first thing I thought about was Drumtown's Finest, which we have a clip uh, of. Um, I'm not sure it was up long enough in order to give it a, a, a lower third. But no, I think we do. But it's a film made by Sydney Freeland, a trans filmmaker. And she's everything she does, I love. Um, so I think we, like the more trans people are telling these stories from the beginning. It's not just about putting a trans person in the role after the script has been, you know, finalized. You know, so much damage has been done before we even get to casting, you know, and we talk about the casting issue in the film yeah. and, and it's becoming a common conversation and it's super important because so much has to happen before we get to that point. So I say, look, look at indie filmmakers and bring them in from the beginning and, um, and hire trans people, pay trans people, support yeah. trans people. Um, until we live in a society where the power is more balanced, um, you just, you can't be telling our stories for us. And I, I, we should mention that you, you, um, you, you paid everybody who we see on screen. Everyone was paid for their time, which is not at all the norm in documentary film. Mm -hmm. Um, It's highly contested. Um, uh, for many, many years, I got a lot of pushback about that. I've always insisted on it. And to me, it was just, it's always been very clear. The two things were always very clear. No matter what happened with the success of the film, I would still get some sort of cultural capital for producing and finishing a product. Um, whereas, who, know, you know, who knows what benefit the person that participated would get. So, and the second thing is, they could be working during that time, they could be making money. And, and specifically with trans people, or if you're making a film about any marginalized community, there's probably, an, a, there's probably a class issue. There's probably a financial issue um, in terms of a, you know, a lower economic class, in terms of needing to work. Um, so this person is giving you their time when they could be making money, and they're giving you their expertise and their life experience. That should be compensated for, right? This shouldn't be for free. Um, and I don't understand why documentary filmmakers insist on not paying their subjects. I, the, the idea that paying the, your participants in documentary films somehow spoils the truth 
is, it makes no sense. I mean, we're editing the material. You're editing often hundreds of hours of material. Like truth is not, this is, we're telling a story. This is not, you know, factually, this is not journalism where you're just interviewing for the facts and the facts only, which also doesn't really exist. So it's, I feel like it's this real, this echo of this very imperialist, colonialist harm to say we should go and tell other people's stories and not compensate them for their time. So yes, everyone in front of the camera was paid. I love that. Um, <laughs> and I'm very passionate you. about that issue. I can go on and on about that one. No, please, uh, please as you should. I, I hope that uh, that it moves the needle for you know for more documentaries moving forward because it's so right. And also, it it it's there are echoes of of kind of like the conversations that we're having around Black Lives Matter now, where you know white allies are often asking black people to sort of do all the explaining for them, you know, do, do all of the sort of storytelling for them. And um, it just puts the onus back on that person to do all of the work and it's work. Right. Right. Pay people for their work. Pay people for their work. Um, Sam Fader, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thank really you. Fun. It was great talking to you. Really nice talking to you Everyone watch Disclosure. Yes. Right now. Uh, and I hope there will be more Disclosure. I hope that this is just chapter one of something uh, more to come. And when there is more, please come back and talk about that too. Thank you. It's so exciting that people want to see more. It's the best thing to hear. And say hi to Eli and tell him I'm I will. clearly overdue. <laughs> <laughs> you look great. Thank you. So, Sam, yeah. thank you so much. <laughs>